Hello and welcome to 2023 listeners and welcome again to Kissa, a story podcast. I'm ready for a whole new year of stories. I hope you are too. Like most stories, this one today also begins in the past. But unlike the others, it is not the distant past. Some of us, some of you were probably alive already then. I know I was. And it's a story that's still unfolding. This is a horror story, a true horror story. So come with me now to December of 1984. It's cold, relatively speaking, for the part of North India where we're headed. The mercury on the night of December 2nd has dipped down to around 14 to 15 degrees Celsius. I know that doesn't seem like very cold to us, um, but understand this was from highs that can in the summer range above 100 degrees. And also there's no central heating here, especially in the shanty town where our story is set. The roofs are made of sheets of corrugated tin. Maybe there's even some asbestos sheets lingering around there. The walls are gapped rough brick. Um, The mortar is sort of flaking off and the floors are mostly hard packed earth. The doors are ill-fitting and loose. So there's barely any insulation, like I said. And this allows the chilly night air to seep in through the many gaps and crevices wrapping its coils around the sleeping people. But tonight, the sleeping families don't just have the cold to contend with, for there's a monster on the loose, and the monster is headed straight for them. It will grab a hold of their throats and make breathing impossible. It will burn them from the inside out. It will make them bleed internally and it will kill and maim them without mercy. Like the cool air, this monster too has no form. It can be barely seen. This night, it has escaped from its lair with only one intent, ready to kill anyone in its path. And on this night, everyone in the town of Popal is in its path. It arrives in the dark in the early morning hours, during the time that straddles the night of one day and the dawn of another. Sometime in the very early morning of December 3rd, a phantasmic white smoke wends its way through the slums. Survivors don't remember its appearance as much as how it attacked them. They also recall how it killed their families and friends right in front of them, right in front of their powerless gazes. Let's view this night through the eyes of a young teenage boy named Sunil. 13-year-old Sunil lived with his parents, his three brothers and four sisters in the shanty town that surrounded a large factory, which was the biggest employer around. The family was poor, but seemed to have been happy enough. Sunil went to school, and after returning home, he played marbles with his friends in the open fields around the slums. This night, Sunil came awake quickly 
awakening into a world of confusion, fear and pain. There were screams. Was, his, was it his mother or his father shouting? Or was someone from outside shouting at them? It was dark, it was confusing, and someone was shouting, exhorting everyone to leave. So all of the people in the shanty town, including Sunil and his family, spilled out into the dark, terrifying night. A poisonous miasma was choking everyone, making their eyes burn and sting, their lungs instantly filling up with fluid. People were unable to breathe. Some dropped to the ground instantly and died, or lay dying. Sunil felt faint himself, and his consciousness faded briefly. Forcing himself to alertness, despite the agony he was experiencing, he kept walking, taking comfort that he was with his family. He stopped briefly to stare at a woman convulsing violently on the same place where he usually played marbles with his friends. This was an image that Sunil would probably carry with him to the end of his days. Then he realized in the panic, darkness, and the sheer number of people around him, he had been separated from his family. There was no way to turn. He didn't know what to do. It was dark. It was confusing. His lungs were burning, as were his eyes. Then mercifully, he fainted. He awoke to a continuing nightmare, alone and atop a slow-moving vehicle. For a moment, he lay comfortably still, taking stock of the situation. Then he realized he was in a huddle of strangers whose unmoving bodies pressed against his on all sides. A huddle of strangers. Sunil had been placed on a pile of dead bodies being taken for mass cremation for he had been found and assumed to be dead. Escaping that eventual fate of um, death and cremation, he searched for his family relentlessly for days. Remember, he was a 13-year-old child. There was no one to help him because he was trapped in a hell of dead and decaying bodies. Desperate mothers searched for their children. Toddlers screamed for their mothers and all around him were hundreds of thousands, thousands of dazed, traumatized people. Alone, desperate and hungry, he stumbled around in a daze, looking into the faces of the dead printed on the posters that had appeared all around them. Then one day, he found himself looking at the agonized, dead faces of his parents and five of his siblings. That's how he discovered that he was an orphan, by looking at pictures post on a poster. But there was hope for one brother and sister could possibly still be alive. Their faces weren't on the posters. And against all odds, he found them. His 18-month-old brother and nine-year-old sister. He took them all to the only home that the children had known back to where they had lived as a complete family, back to where the horror had come, back to right in front of the very place that had unleashed a murderous monster on the sleeping citizens of the shanty towns and slums of Bhopal. He worked as a daily wage laborer by day, a dishwasher for a tea stall by night. Remember, he's a teenager.
he's 13 or 14 at this point. Gradually, other children joined the little family, children fleeing abusive parents, other orphans who didn't have anything to eat, anyone needing a safe refuge, and he tried his best to look after all of them. If you haven't guessed, that night in Bhopal in 1984 was the site of the deadliest and largest industrial accident the world had ever seen or has seen since then. Though to call it an accident is to let those responsible off the hook, this was no accident. This was an incident waiting to happen, a foregone conclusion. It was only a matter of when. Do you know something else? Those truly responsible were never brought to justice. They paid a fraction of what they should have, and that really was just to settle litigation fees and fines. No compensation was paid to the dead, the sick, the orphaned, the thousands of victims of the Popal Union Carbide disaster. We will cover some more of these details in part two of this episode. Yes, this story is too huge and too involved and too important to be completed in just one episode. Important and forgotten. I think the world has just sort of blithely gone forward and it's just stuck in the annals of history, but this is an unfolding horror story. So back to Sunil. Sunil became an activist and he desperately tried to hold those responsible to account. He became involved with grassroots level NGOs um, and he traveled to Europe and to the US raising awareness. He testified in various court proceedings at the UN against Union Carbide. And he worked without pay in Bhopal in all of these grassroots organizations that helped out those affected by the disaster because he was seeing it all around him. Once while he was in the US, he was arrested while he was handing out environmental reports in the lobby of a hotel. Oh yes, this was in Houston and the hotel was near the headquarters of the Union Carbide Factory Corporation, sorry. Sunil suffered greatly, not just physically, but emotionally and mentally throughout his life. Defeated by his many physical and emotional ailments, one day in 2006, Sunil Sharma took a shower, dressed carefully in clean clothes. He usually didn't apparently care about his appearance that much. And he wrote a note. Then he hanged himself. In his suicide note, he wrote that he had made the decision to end his life and that he was in his senses. He also wrote in all capital letters, no more Bhopals. After his death, his friends and colleagues planted trees in his memory across the world. These trees now bloom and grow in Europe, Asia, Africa and the Americas. Some of his well-wishers also started a clinic to provide counseling and psychiatric health services um, because this was not happening. Um, yeah, so counseling and psychiatric health services to those who carry the scars of Popal's tragic night. Some of his friends remember when he would tell them, I am no longer afraid of being killed. I am already dead and fearless. But Sunil 
is just one story out of many. There are thousands more tragic tales of death, survival, suffering, and inspiration to emerge from that night. More people died as a result of this tragedy in Bhopal than on 9-11. Official death accounts were that there were a little under 4,000 people, 3,787 to be exact. But as is quite common in countries like India, the actual death count is estimated to be closer to 10,000. There's some estimates which might or might not be right that put this number as high as 20,000. Entire families were wiped out. There was no one to mourn them or to tell the authorities that be that people had died. They just disappeared, they vanished. We might also never know how many would die over the years because of the events of the night. There were um, people who were anonymously created, buried in mass graves or dumped in rivers. So the true magnitude, the true immediate magnitude of this tragedy is hard to fathom, but there were thousands. But the horrors that unfolded that night in Popal continue to dog the survivors. Babies being born today in 2022-23 still bear the legacy of that night. So what happened? Here are the bare facts. Sometime during the night of December 2nd, 1984, the plant began leaking methyl isocyanate gas. There were supposed to be six safety systems, six, that were designed specifically to contain such leaks because apparently this was a known danger. None of, these six, none of these six systems were working. And this exposed half a million people in the Popal area to this gas. Here are some of the effects of methyl isocyanate on the human body. Pulmonary lung edema, eyelid edema, hemorrhages, bronchial pneumonia leading to death, Symptoms develop between one to two hours after exposure and the effects keep progressing from 24 to 72 hours. So this is not like you get exposed, you have a reaction and then it dissipates. It doesn't, it keeps getting stronger. And um, this results in acute lung injury, cardiac arrest, seizures, and of course, death. It is estimated that methyl isocyanate is about twice as lethal as cyanide. It leads to extreme irritation and burning of the eyes and it decimates the kidneys, spleen and liver. It is a particularly toxic um, chemical because it affects several bodily function systems in devastating ways. Once the gas has entered the human body by either breathing it in or ingesting it, the effects only worsen as time passes, like I said. Survivors have dealt with and continue to deal with high levels of cancer, pulmonary problems, and the women especially face severe gynecological issues to this day. Union Carbide um, employed most of those who lived in the shanty home surrounding the factory. Other citizens of the area also fulfilled support functions for the workers. Most of them lived there with their entire families. And the disaster seems to, be, uh, to have been inevitable when you realize that the groundwater and the soil had 
already been heavily contaminated by the chemicals from the factory years before death arrived in a more sudden and spectacular manner. There are thousands, thousands of information, uh, thousands of pages rather, of information about the Bhopal disaster. Apart from various news sources and Wikipedia pages, I got a lot of information, especially about Sunil Verma, who really just touched me. And I got this from the Bhopal Medical Appeal, which is an organization that was created to help the survivors of the disaster. And they do this by representing the survivors and through medical um, aid, including psychiatric interventions, because people often tend to forget the very real mental and emotional um, issues brought about um, by the disaster. Listeners, I told you this is a horror story, but it is not just a horror story. It's also a David, David and Goliath tale. David is all the dead poor and suffering from Bhopal, of which Sunil was one. But Davids continue to be born in Bhopal, for they are born with defects that can be traced directly to the effects of the Union Carbide factory. The undefeated Goliath in our story is of course Union Carbide. You don't know the company, you've not heard of them. Hmm. How about Dow? Do you know Dow? Like a snake shedding its troublesome skin, Union Carbide shed its tainted name and was eventually absorbed by Dow. Who can be held accountable if the person or the entity that did you harm no longer exists? Clever, clever. But every Goliath also has a human face and the human face of our Goliath belonged to Warren Anderson, the chairman of Union Carbide. Of course, like most CEOs of multinational companies, he wasn't involved in the day-to-day running of the plant in India. I mean, that's, of course, a foregone conclusion. But he was responsible for making crucial decisions that inevitably led to the gas leak. In part two, we will delve into the story of Warren Anderson and his life, and we'll explore why the disaster was not an accident, and uh, we'll look at some of the legal battles that resulted from the events of that night. Until then, I would encourage you to discover for yourself the scope of this disaster and its far-reaching effects. This is an ongoing and unfolding human tragedy, and the world seems intent on forgetting. In fact, it has forgotten. It's moved on. I would encourage you to visit the Bhopal Medical Appeal website at bhopal.org, that's B as in boy, H-O-P-A-L.org, to learn more about the disaster and to see if you can help and how you can help. Until next time, stay well, stay safe, story lovers. As always, please rate, review, download, and listen to Kissa, a story podcast on your preferred podcast platform. And don't forget to tell your story-loving friends about us.